You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. I read constantly as a child. And I want to hug you and I want to embrace you and I want to suddenly be your best friend. Why do I feel the need to justify my time on this planet? We're seeing socialized medicine happen right now with the rollout of the vaccine and the fact that it's available to everyone and that it's free. Fuck you, Woody Allen. Fuck you and fuck your films. They have no taste. It's amazing. Hello. 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 <laughs> and welcome to Pop-Tarts. Me, 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 me. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we have such a special episode because our guest is not only one of my all-time favorite writers, but she's also probably the one living writer whose work I personally relate to most. So this is a big day for me. Roxanne Gay is a brilliant writer of essays, fiction, comic books, newspaper editorials for the New York Times, and a fantastic newsletter called The Audacity. She is also a writing professor, most recently at Yale, and an editor of anthologies and collected works. She has many books, but the ones that have had the greatest impact on me have been the essay collection, Bad Feminist, the short story collection, Difficult Women, and most of all, her memoir, Hunger, which at times felt to me like I was reading a transcript of my own secret inner world. Roxanne has her own course on the streaming platform Masterclass, where she's teaching writing for social change. In this class, she discusses the intersections of race, sexuality, gender, and other social justice issues. She shares how she has personally used her writing to make a positive impact in the world, and she offers practical advice for writers of all levels on how we can follow in her footsteps. I've checked out the class myself. I absolutely sopped it all up, and I can't wait to talk about it. Welcome, Roxanne Gay, to our show. Yay! Yay! Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. You're here. Um, what, <laughs> what I'd love to do is to start off with your origin story. I know that you were born in Omaha, Nebraska, to Haitian parents. What can you tell us about how that little girl born in the Midwest in the 1970s how did she become the bad feminist that we all know and love today? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that a lot of it has to do with reading a lot. I read constantly as a child. I was not very good at socializing and making friends and being normal. And so I found a lot of solace in books. And I was reading way beyond my grade level. <laughs> because my parents, they would always assume that if something was in a book, then it must be good and it must be totally fine. And so I read a lot and I started to, you know, develop a sense of self and develop a strong set of opinions. And uh, here we are. Uh before we leave the subject of your young life, I need to talk to you about the fact that you and I 
went to the same weight loss summer camp as kids. No way. You went to Kingsmont? I did go to Camp Kingsmont. I went every summer from 1987 to 1990. And I believe you were there somewhere towards the end of my tenure. Yes, I went probably in 1990 or 91. I went in 1990 or 91, but I'm pretty sure it would be 1990. I'm pretty sure it was 1990 when, when I met you. I didn't, rem- I didn't realize that you were you until I read your work and I saw you describing my summer camp. Um, and I'm pretty sure I have one very clear memory of you from that time. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> Um, the the one, the one memory I have that I believe is you is that we were not in the same bunk because you're only, you're a few months older than I am. Mm -hmm. But I remember a very tall girl with red hair coming over to me and saying that she was really good at doing hair and that they wanted to give Roxanne extensions and everyone knew that I had long hair. And so she wanted to cut a big chunk of my hair off to tie onto Roxanne's head and I just wanted friends so badly. I was like, sure. And so they took a big chunk off the back that actually took many years to grow back. And after they took it, they rejected it because I still had some leftover knits from when I had had head lice bef- the year before. I thought all the knits were gone, but they weren't. But I, I sacrificed a big chunk of hair for Roxanne's hair extension project. Um, but it didn't really go well. But I remember meeting you that one time. I have no recollection of this at all. I mean, I don't remember really anything from my childhood. <laughs> but wow, this is a great story. <laughs> oh my God. I just remember because I was going through a heavy police phase at the time. And I was like, if my hair could be on the head of someone named Roxanne, that would be so cool. Like, it would be like part of me was cool on someone else's head, but it was not to be because I just had another layer of rejection. That place had a huge impact on me. I've been trying to finish my YA novel about Camp Kingsmont for many years. I'm wondering what your memories are from there, if you have any at all. You know, I really don't remember much about it. I just remember uh, walking uphill all the time. All the time. Those uphill both ways. Yep. They put the cabins on top of a hill and then they put other things on top of another hill. And there were no like golf carts. You had to walk everywhere all the time and it was hot and the, the, oh God. Yeah. Anytime you wanted to eat food of any kind, you had to like scale a mountain, a Berkshire mm-hmm. mountain to get to it. And I just remember thinking how I would always like conserve and plan my days around having to go up that hill as little as possible. (laughs) Well, as I said, I watched your masterclass and it is so engrossing and also truly inspiring and helpful. I'm a professional writer. I write every day for work. I also write for fun and I I picked up so many tips and tricks that I didn't have. I, I had my notebook at my side the whole time. Um, You're such an accomplished writer in so many different genres. What made you decide on writing for social change as the focus of your masterclass? I was thinking about the questions that I'm most often asked. And of course, people tend to ask, you know, how do I find my voice? How do I get published? But really, how do I reach people with my words? And so I thought, let me think of a, a useful focus for this class because 
you know, when you're talking about writing, it can be so broad. And so I thought I'll talk about really opinion writing, which is what I'm most known for, I would think. And then, you know, writing for social change is just a fancy way of saying opinion writing. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But not all opinions are, are on the status of social change. Correct. I've taken many writing classes in my life. The first ones were taught by my mom, who's a journalist, after school and elementary school. I took writing classes all the way through college, and then after college at community writers, centers, and workshops. And in all that time, I never once had a Black woman as a writing teacher, ever. Um, I also never had a writing teacher tell us anything about how the business side of writing actually works at all, Mm -hmm. which you do. Can you talk a little bit first about occupying this space as a masterclass teacher who's also a black woman and also why you include business advice in your course? Yes. You know, when I was looking at the offerings of masterclass, I am actually a member and I was well before I even got the idea into my head to do a masterclass uh, because I wanted to take Shonda Rhimes's class on screenwriting and storytelling. And as I was looking at the offerings that were available, I noticed that there were just very few black women on that platform. And it's the same everywhere. And it's just, you know, enough is enough. It's so frustrating that we continue to have to, to say and call out a lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in spaces like this, where they have the resources to, to change the narrative. And so that was one of the reasons I wanted to do a masterclass. But also a lot of times people ask me if they could take a class with me. And so this was a really effective way of, of doing that. And uh, it it was a lot of fun. Masterclasses, um, they are a tight operation (laughs) and they really (laughs) got to take care of, of their teachers. Yeah. I mean, it was very, um, I was a little daunted by the length of the course, but it really goes by very quickly because it's it's very um, conversational and it's um, you know absorbing in the way that um, you know a good documentary is, but you're actually getting a lot of concrete knowledge and skill skill set advancement in it as well. I, I find it sort of like a magic trick in that way. <laughs> Yeah, it it feels like a magic trick sometimes, which is, I think, why these kinds of classes can be really useful so that people understand it's actually not a magic trick, that there are tools and skills you can learn. You talk in your class about how students can develop writing skills specifically to interpret personal trauma effectively as a tool for social change. Mm -hmm. Your, Your 2017 book, Hunger, alone to me, is a masterclass on this subject. And the same year that that book came out, the Me Too movement went viral. And suddenly, writing specifically by women, mining their personal trauma was everywhere. I know at BUS, we're inundated with stories of assault in our submissions email account. I'm sure you must have noticed this in student writing as well. Mm. Is it possible for us, as writers, as editors, as consumers of pop culture, as feminists, to gain any kind of critical distance from all the harrowing personal stories of abuse, should we be trying to do that? And how do we maintain good boundaries when people are revealing their deepest traumas to us and when we are 
creating work that is revealing also to the world? A lot of people have a lot of really terrible stories and they need to share them or want to share them. And I think it's important to create space for that. But when we're talking about writing for an audience and writing for publication, you absolutely have to be able to differentiate between writing as catharsis and writing for an audience. And it's if you're not ready to, to make that leap, you're not ready. And that's okay. And uh, I, around the same time that Me Too started, I had an anthology come out called Not That Bad. And about a year and a half before that, when I opened up submissions, I found that I think we got 330, 333 submissions. And of those, 300 were like testimony, just people mm. sharing this thing happened to me. But there was no... There was, and, and too many of them, it, was, it really was literally just first this happened, then this happened. Like they just wanted to unburden themselves. Right. And so one of the challenges and what I try to talk about in the chapter about writing about trauma is how do you take that unburdening and make it into something someone else will care about? And how do you do so artfully? And it can be challenging because a lot of the time we're too close to the material and mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to to have like the necessary distance or detachment to to really like write about something dispassionately but you don't actually have to the goal is not dispassion the goal is just to make sure you understand that the audience is there and that you have a reason for telling the story to an audience beyond this happened to me and uh because i can't you know i encounter a lot of writers who say things like I have a story that's worth telling. And it's like, I know you think that sounds good. And I know you believe that. And I believe that, but why? And I think, you know, it's really important when you're talking about writing trauma or writing about personal experiences that you have a clear sense of what you're trying to accomplish and uh, a clear sense of purpose. You know, you've mentioned um, in your masterclass and also elsewhere that you're naturally a somewhat shy person, which is something that I can relate to as well. I know for myself as a large person and also as someone who experienced trauma as a child, I've always been much more comfortable writing and editing and podcasting than doing anything that involves being directly observed by strangers in any way for any reason. As a fellow shy person, how have you been navigating being so much more in the public eye now than you were 10 years ago. And do you have any tips for me to get braver? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that a lot of times we try to wait for bravery or courage to do something. And I have found that there's no need to wait. Like I do things despite being afraid and despite being anxious about it or whatever, because if I wait for the courage, I'll be waiting a real long time. I will probably (laughs) be waiting forever. And so it's easier to just forge ahead. Not everyone can do that, but I seem to have a, an endless capacity for making myself miserable. <laughs> <laughs> you also, you know, you, you wrote so candidly and so personally in a lot of your work, but especially in Hunger, you know, that the, the uh, I feel like the human inclination would be to run up to someone like you and say like, what you said about your trauma really touched me. I want to tell you about my thing and I want to hug you and I want to embrace you. And I 
want to suddenly be your best friend because I identified so intimately with your experience. And that, um, I'm sure for a shy person or literally for any person I, I can imagine must be very difficult. So how do you maintain your boundaries publicly when you've provoked so, so many emotional reactions in so many people? Uh, you know, you just have to develop boundaries and stick to them. And the older I get, the more willing I am to stay firm in my boundaries. When you do write about personal things, when you write about trauma, when you write about fatness, living in a, a woman's body, living in a human body, uh, people are going to find connections between your life and theirs, your experiences and theirs. And I try to honor that at all times while also respecting my own boundaries. And so uh, one of the key things is that I don't let people hug me. And, you know, a lot of times people want to, and I say, you read hunger, you can quote <laughs> entire passages back. And I literally say, I don't like hugs. <laughs> so people get really upset sometimes that I don't want to hug them. And I just think we, we don't actually know each other, but I do handshakes, which I feel like is a nice compromise. And on the days when I just don't think I can carry someone else's trauma, I, I try as respectfully as I can to say, I, you know, I thank you for trusting me with your story, but I have enough trauma to carry already. And, and so I, I can't carry yours too today. And, um, at many of my events, there are counselors available for audience members who are either triggered or who are feeling vulnerable after the event so that they know that professionals are there to help them navigate that emotional terrain that they're dealing with. Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I feel like a lot has been written and sort of hemmed and hawed about when it comes to academia and trigger warnings, and people becoming triggered. And should we coddle our youth? Should we make them go through the trials by fire of the past. Um, you're, you're a professor, you're a mentor, you deal with people, you know, revealing past traumas as a, as a writing practice. How do you feel about trigger warnings in an academic setting? And how do you feel about um, navigating this sort of newer terrain in the college setting? Um, I feel fine with it. Um, you know, I just try to impart to my students that writing is a craft and I understand that you might be feeling these deeply personal things, but writing is a craft and it's super, super important to remember that. Um, because so few, you know, the university setting can be very rigid and very unwelcoming to personal narrative. And so one of the things that creative writing teachers find, and myself included, is that people use that opportunity to share quite a lot of their feelings. You know, I just make time for it and I make space for it while also making clear that this is a, a, a discipline and we are going to have discipline and we're, we are, you know, we're going to apply craft. You're going to be critiqued. And so don't put anything into this space that you're not willing to have critiqued. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to share that with people. I also remember you writing 
I believe it was in one of your essays where you talked about specifically how women are allowed to become writers as long as they're writing personal essays because we're only allowed to be experts in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Do you think that as women and as feminists, we have a sort of a personal responsibility to branch out from the personal, make it political, make it more relevant in, in the, the broader context of the world, if only to sort of buck that trend that women aren't trusted as authorities on anything other than our own personal experience. No, because then that says that we're limiting ourselves based on, you know, other people's issues. If you want to write a personal essay, write a personal essay. Um, It's not fair that we should have to, you know, prove ourselves. And, And also the personal is political. And I think it's a very political thing to write personally. And it it requires quite a lot. Um, It requires quite a lot to do, um, to do well, to do it all, uh, but mostly to do well. And that said, I always encourage young people and young women, young queer people, uh, young gender queer people, you know, you don't have to cannibalize yourself. If you want to write about something else, write about something else, write about anything. And I think that can be really helpful for them to know and to have that permission and to know that you don't only have to write about your identity, Uh, though you can. And Mm -hmm. that's great. But it's not the only thing you have to offer. And I wish more people understood that. You know, I really loved reading your essays about your relationship with your wife, Debbie Millman. Uh, You wrote so beautifully about the fact that before the pandemic, you were maintaining separate households. But when the whole world shut down, you finally decided to live together. And eventually you guys got married. Mm -hmm. What has the last year been like for you two managing two major careers together inside of one household during a global shutdown? Like, can you... Give us the latest and the greatest from the gay millman household. Sure. We still have two houses. We still go back and forth, but we go back and forth together. And we had actually decided to live together before before the pandemic, just like a week before the lockdown started. Wow. Um, which, thank God. <laughs> but it's been, you know, um, it's been interesting. It's been an adventure. It's been awesome. You know, it's been hard to even enjoy that because so many people are suffering in so many different ways and we're okay. We're doing well. We're having a good time. Now, there are the stresses you might expect. I basically lost all my income overnight and I don't know when it's going to come back, honestly, but I have been able to supplement that with just some writing work and you know, I married well, so it's <laughs> okay. It's going to be okay. I had some say, I, you know, I have some savings, so like I can get through a year of um, not making money. Uh, after that, I will start to freak out. Um, so around June, if things don't start to pick back up, you see me sort of on the street corner, you'll know why. Um Oh, that came out wrong. I meant like sort of holding a sign or something. 
<laughs> whatever pays the bills, right? I mean, I'm not opposed to the other interpretation. Um, you know, we do both actually have big careers. And so, uh, you know, it's just our, like every night we compare our schedules for the next day. <laughs> and it sometimes seems really cuckoo when you look at all of uh, the stuff that we're dealing with and how we have to also then make time for each other, which we do. And so it's a lot of fun and I'm incredibly proud of her and everything that she does. And she's incredibly supportive and proud of me and uh, we just make it work and uh, you know, we're older. And so it's a lot of the issues that I think I would have had in a relationship like this many years ago aren't, aren't there. Like I have nothing to prove to anyone and she has nothing to prove to anyone. Like we've already, you know, we still have a lot of runway left and a lot of career ambitions, but we're equals and um, we know who we are at this point in our lives for better and worse. And that it's a really great place to start a relationship from. I've also seen some outrageously cute pictures of your puppy. <laughs> yeah. Is this your first foray into dog ownership? And yeah. what has pet parenthood been like for you guys? It's been wonderful. Debbie is an animal lover and I am not. And so she got two cats a week before we met. <laughs> we have two cats, Theo and Lou. And we have a puppy, which I got her for her birthday in October. And she had previously had two dogs and she had them for about 18 years, uh, Scruffy and Duff. And they died within six months of each other about three years ago. And so she had to take some time to recover. It was really devastating for her because they had just been part of her life for so long. Um, and so when she started to give me inklings that she was ready, I had told her on like the first week of our relationship that we will never have a dog. <laughs> and I should have known then, but <laughs> I just really tried to wrap my mind around it. And I was like, I'll do this if we can get a puppy. And because I want to be able to like know it from the ground level. And so we got a little baby puppy and now he's not a baby, he's six months old and he's super cute and he's like super smart and he hates food. So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Are you always just trying to tempt him towards the bowl with oh, like whatever? So much. And so he eats when he gets hungry enough because like we've gotten to the point where we've literally tried everything from like ridiculous celebrity bullshit to Caesars and uh, Purina shit. Um, he just doesn't give a fuck. And so eventually he gets hungry enough that he eats the organic stuff we get from a, an acquaint a friend of ours. Her family owns a turkey farm and their side business is making animal food. And so we give him these things called bluffs and he loves them until he doesn't. And so now we just feed him and like, when you get hungry enough, you're going to eat that. <laughs> also we feed him whatever we might be eating because when we eat all of a sudden he's intensely interested and <laughs> ready to eat whatever, but he has to sniff it and sort of decide if he likes the bouquet. And if he does, then he will, but if he doesn't like it and nine times out of 10, he doesn't, he walks away. He just is like, no, I can't relate. I cannot relate at all. 
<laughs> oh, my cats love food so much. And I'm like, that. yeah, that. those are my cats for yeah. sure. For cats sure. love to eat. Um, and he actually likes to eat their food. Mm. And they like to eat his food. Uh, and it's fine for them to eat his food, but apparently it's not good for him to eat theirs. Huh. Right. So, you know, it's just... Uh, it's a, it's a, it's an adventure. It is an adventure. It's a multi-species smorgasbord. It is. It really is. Uh, you know, because of your because of the the massive success of your book Bad Feminist, which came out in 2014, your name has basically become synonymous with feminism, and people often want to quote you as a, a sort of monolithic authority on feminism. I'd love to know what your feelings on this are and how your success with bad feminists has impacted your personal feminism? Uh, you know, bad feminist, certainly the success of the book has surprised me. And that's because I was writing a book from a black feminist perspective and people don't care about feminism or black women. So <laughs> when you put those things together and still people care, you think, huh, and so it's been interesting to see the book's trajectory over the years. Uh, and also, you know, people assume it has sold way more than it has, but it has sold enough that, you know, it's being taught in a lot of different schools. And I have found quite a lot of very passionate readers who are passionate in either direction. <laughs> and it's been quite a ride. It is challenging that in certain circles, my name has become synonymous with feminism because I am but one small cog in the feminist machine and there are so many amazing thinkers and activists and writers and people working in this space who deserve attention and I, I write about this in Bad Feminists like don't put people on pedestals and people then do exactly what you tell them to not do mm -hmm. uh, which is frustrating and so I try to always you know when it comes up I do try to remind people Here's my perspective, which is one perspective, but is not the perspective. And here are, you know, two or three other people who have some interesting ideas in, about this as well. And, you know, I just try to do that as often as I can. And also, you know, take ownership of, yeah, I wrote a pretty good book about feminism and I'm sure I'll do it again. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious why your name isn't being brought up in the in the context of fat liberation in the way that it should be when it is brought up all the time in terms of feminism. I, I think there are a few reasons. Uh, one, we are not ready for fat liberation. And people, you know, fat phobia and fat phobic discourse is very acceptable. It's encouraged. What about health? Like, fuck you. I, you know, you know um, Sonia Renee Taylor wrote a really great book called The Body is Not an Apology. And one of the things she talks about is that, and it, I recently reread the book and that's why it's on my mind, is that we actually don't owe anyone good health. That's not like a thing. So what if I'm sick? Who cares? It's not your business. Um, this idea that we owe society good health is absurd. And what is good health anyway? I assure, you know, and then, and then I feel like, okay, I have to say I'm a fat, healthy person. I'm a healthy, fat person, which is true. But like, why do I feel the need to say that? You know, like, why do I feel the need to justify 
on my time on this planet with good health. Um, it's frustrating. I think another reason why my name is not necessarily brought up in terms of fat discourse is because there are so many people who have been in this space for a very long time who have been doing the work and I've written one book and it's a book that, uh, is, is complicated and says some things that fly in the face of fat liberation and fat positivity. Mm. And I, I actually accept that and honor that. I think it's totally fair. I think that there are fat activists who are legitimately working in this space. And I think I do too, but I do it in my own way. And it's more just like by living and being fat in public and holding my head as high as I can. Um, and I think it deserves credit certainly, but mm-hmm. I'm fine with not getting that credit. Like I'm, you know, my ego's good enough. I'm good. You know, it is what it is. I don't lose sleep over it. I, I totally admire the people who have been working in this space and who do so so unapologetically and so consistently. Um, that's great. Uh, so, yeah, I think those are the two main re- things going on there. And I don't know that we'll ever get to a place as a culture where we can talk about fatness in ways that are respectful of fat bodies that honor fat bodies and embrace them. And it's a shame, especially because we're going to see a lot of, in the next few weeks, we're going to see a lot of bullshit. And I hope that fat people everywhere can just prepare themselves because in California, they're opening up the vaccines to fat people on March 15th. It's great because Statistics show that fat people are disproportionately affected by COVID. Right. You want to fucking have your little intellectual debates about it, whatever. Here's where we are today. And so um, people are going to really show their true colors. And there are a lot of liberals that are very fucking fat phobic. Very. I, frankly, they're more fat phobic than I would say conservatives are. There are some reasons for that. (laughs) But, um, you know, liberals love to believe that they are inclusive and accepting, but they're inclusive and accepting of people who fit their idea of people who deserve rights. In fact, people are not part of that demographic in any way. And they don't want to create space like, you know, I'm, you, I'm sure you can relate to this, like all of their little fundraisers with T-shirts that go up to 2X like, or extra <laughs> large. Like, come on, who are you doing this for? You're doing it for yourselves and you fucking little skinny ass people in Brooklyn wearing those jeans that are so tight that they're not going to be able to have children. It's just, <laughs> you know, they're not interested in being inclusive or even thinking about not only fatness, but disability. Um, because right down the road from fatness is disability and how people are overlooked or disregarded or seen as less than. And we've seen that throughout COVID with all of these nonsense, do not resuscitate orders for people, of you know, differing abilities and who our society deems as not valuable. And right. It's very dangerous when you think about fat people without means, without resources, without family, without visibility, and the ways that they're being treated with COVID. 
I think there are a lot of people that have died. Like, you know who else is really susceptible to COVID is smokers. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard a single person say that you should not be allowed to get vaccinated if you're a smoker. I haven't heard it once. Roxanne, what are your hopes and your dreams and your plans for the rest of 2021? What's on your vision board? You know, my hopes for the rest of the year are to finish the book I have due on March 1st. <laughs> Ooh. And then finish another book. And get back on the road for touring. And, you know, I just want to spend the rest of the year writing good things and having fun with my wife and my puppy. And my parents kind of live with us. So, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) bring it on. And, uh, but I'm glad. I'm glad that I'm at a place in my life where we can have them around. And, um, cause my mom is, uh, has lung cancer mm. and, uh, it's, you know, people keep talking about how horrible COVID has been and it's horrible, but it's, it's another level entirely. Like when you're dealing with someone with end stage lung cancer, who is so vulnerable to the disease and, you know, like the challenges we've faced, I basically moved my parents here so I could get them vaccinated. And it worked, but it shouldn't be this hard. Like they shouldn't have had to move to get the vaccine. And if they didn't have children who could navigate the websites and so on, it it would be a nightmare. And so I'm also hoping that um, for the rest of the year, people have easier access to the healthcare they need. And that we start to have a serious conversation about socialized medicine because we're seeing socialized medicine happen right now with the rollout of the vaccine and the fact that it's available to everyone and that it's free. This is socialized medicine. It's not some scary boogeyman um, that's trying to take all your little wealth. It's or big wealth (laughs) (laughs) or whatever wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Or lack thereof, you know? Um, So I just, we can maybe have a good conversation about it because it's time. It's absolutely time. And COVID has shown us that in so many different ways. And this last question I have for you is a question that we ask everyone, but I'm especially curious to ask you because you are such an astute cultural critic. That question is, what you watching? And when I say what you watching, it covers everything pop cultural. We want to know about books, movies, television, music, music videos, podcasts. If you are consuming it pop culturally, it is probably very, very cool. Roxanne Gay, what you watching? Uh, we just finished Watchmen, which is mm. probably the best television I've ever seen. Um, it's uh, it's so brilliant. I I just I just you know when it ended, I just thought, mm, wow, that's television. I loved it. And we're also watching uh, The Blacklist. <laughs> you know, it's been a long quarantine, okay, and so we have scraped. We are watching network television now. Uh, and I'm watching The Equalizer between Latifah on CBS, mm-hmm. which is actually really good, I have to say. She's phenomenal in it. And the show is entertaining, which is what you could ask for. And I'm watching The Crown. Mm-hmm. I watched Bling Empire, which <laughs> so bad. Um, and I watched um, Flack on Amazon. And Yeah, I saw your essay on Flack. It made me want to watch it. Yeah, Flack is phenomenal. And... 
complicated and messy and you should watch it. Oh, I've been listening to a lot of David Byrne, of all people. Oh. Uh, we watched American Utopia, HBO Max. And so I just started to, and my wife interviewed him for her podcast. And so I started to sort of do a deep dive into his discography. And it's not, I mostly listen to R&B and hip hop. And so it's been fun to listen to some different kinds of music. And I've been listening to um, some Reese Palmer because we had her on our podcast that I co-host with uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom. And she is a black country music singer, very talented. And um, reading, I'm going to tell you the title of the book I'm reading because it's actually really good. Hold on. And I can't remember the title because it doesn't matter in my head when I'm reading it. Things We Lost to the Water uh, by, by Eric Quinn. And uh, it's about this Vietnamese family that emigrates to the New Orleans. And it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. And I'm enjoying it very much. I know that you also partake of the Real Housewives franchises. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had... Um, sampled the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Oh yeah, and how you felt like it? Listen, the Real Housewives <laughs> of Salt Lake City almost is in my heart as number one. It it's really so took over my life for a second. It's just so good. They're like so like so many things are going on there, and it seems like I'm very you know like it's just I never would have thought that they would do a Real Housewives franchise in Utah. They, they you light it up. And so it's just intriguing to me. And then the people are not who you might think of as, as prototypical Mormons. Right. Especially not the two Jewish women yeah. who are not Jewish, but they are, but they're not. Yeah. It's like, so complicated. Wow. There's so many people there with like a, a very tenuous grasp on faith and I'm intrigued by that. And then the woman who was like sold by her family to marry her step grandfather. Yes. <laughs> Mary Cosby. Mary Cosby. Her. Yeah. It's just, I want to know a lot more about Mary Cosby. Let's just say that. Yeah. And so I'm enjoying it. I am on the third episode because I got sidetracked by life, but I am excited to like binge now that it's, I think it's almost over the first season. Yeah. They're up to the, the reunion specials. And so I'm actually excited to be able to watch it without having to wait from week to week. And just like, (laughs) I'm so intrigued. I just want to know everything about these women. It's so good. They're like their makeup and there's a lot there. Jen Shaw has a lot of resources at her disposal. I mean, and it's fascinating to see what she does with them. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so interesting to see people with money or fake money, because sometimes you find out that they're actually like millions of dollars in debt. But you have to have something to get that far in debt. Because, you know, like for us normal people, like you could be like $20 late and they're, you know, the collection agency is like, where's my money? Um, but uh, they have no taste. It's amazing. Roxanne Gay, your work means so much to me. I'm beyond thrilled that you have done our podcast. Thank you so much for talking with us. This hour just flew by for me. And thank you, both of you. This has been awesome. We're going to take the briefest of breaks. And when I come back, I'm going to ask Callie. And Callie, you're going to ask me what what you watching. 
Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious, and I knew would make great podcasts, and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We dockets. all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Rodney. Smith. And, <laughs> and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. so smart. I mean, it's so like smart. To, I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello, Callie. Hello, Rums. We just talked to Roxanne Gay, and I, I'm still in my feelings about it. She, her work is so important to me. Legend there. I can't believe we talked to her. That was so great. Amazing. And now it is the time in the program when I ask you, because I need to know and I want to know and I simply must know, and everything inside me wants to ask you, Callie, what you watching? Let's start with this Amazing horror movie I call I saw called Slack. S L A X S L A X X like Slacks, but spelled different. My friend Kayla, who oh, works at, at Shutter uh, horror movies, she just sent me an email that was like, You want to watch a movie about murderous pants? And I was like, Fuck yeah, I do. And it's a pair of jeans that are sort of like the sisterhood of the traveling pants. They're made to fit, fit like everyone. And like move to your size as your size changes. And so the whole, the store, the, it's like a sort of like a uh, top shop or something. And they're closed down for the night so that they can open up and do the new, the big release of these pants, right? And so super top secret. Slacks. Slacks. And the doors are all locked so people can't get in except one influencer who's coming to do a live thing. And, and then the, the pants start killing people. <laughs> <laughs> amazing blood spray really really good blood spray they get very creative with the way the pants murder people and sneakily this is really a movie about GMOs and uh, labor laws 
Oh, interesting. And you said you watched it on Shutter. Yeah. Nice. Uh, do they like eat your butt when they're on? Um, one the first one like pinches really tight when she's wearing them, but you don't always have to wear them. Like it's like the people will be like walk. Oh, and um, the slacks really like uh, Bollywood music. <laughs> of course, all all those pants like to dance to Bollywood. Well, that's because the cotton was from India. Oh, interesting. I can't reveal too much. But yeah, Camilla don't. was like, when are the pants going to dance? And I was like, these are murder pants. These aren't dance pants. And then the Bollywood <laughs> music came on and they started dancing. And I was like, okay, all right, I stand corrected. They do dance. <laughs> <laughs> then um, here's just a little something I wanted, I think I had mentioned to you, but I feel like everybody should know the conspiracy theory that Jim Morrison is Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> and he's finally dead or uh, still not dead? Jim Morrison was over it. He uh, needed to get out of the drug life. He faked his death. The real Rush Limbaugh had died. The parents knew Jim Morrison and set it all up. So Jim Morrison came and took Rush Limbaugh's identity. <laughs> all because of one photo where Jim Morrison slightly resembles Rush Limbaugh. That's stupid. It's mad stupid. Uh, <laughs> where did where did you capture this conspiracy theory? I think it was on Twitter. Okay. Something the internet's told me. Okay. Um, then I saw I I care a lot. You saw that too, right? Oh no, I have not seen it, but I've heard great things about it. Rosamund Pike. It's got a great cast. It's also got um. Rosamund Pike just won a, a Golden Globe for that. Oh. I didn't really, it was, I didn't pay attention to who, who won really. <laughs> I paid attention That's to okay. some winners. Some winners I saw. Like Audrey Day. Um, is it Dion West? Diana West? Diane Weist. Diane Weist. She's amazing. And she's really, really, really good in it. And uh, Peter Dinklage, always spectacular. And so it started, started out as like a movie about elderly, taking, taking advantage of the elderly and this lady like was scamming them, and then it takes a fucking swerve, a Peter Dinklage swerve. Nice. <laughs> I don't want to give away too much, but I really, really liked it. I liked it more when the swerve came. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really have too much to say about this except that you have to watch this. It's Kittenhood okay. on, on Netflix, and it's a documentary Aww. about three different cats. There's a, a farm cat. And um, the farm cat's from France, and then there's a stray cat that's from Greece, and then uh, a city cat in Tokyo. And I'm it's like here for it. Thank you. From their kitten life all the way through their, their lives. Aww. Um, And then the last one I want to talk about is Flack. That's on Prime. Not to be confused with Slacks. Not to be confused with Slacks. Okay. It's with Anna Paquin, and she plays a PR fixer, like, for, like, crazy situations. It, it'll be, like, you know, like, there are all types of celebrities. There's athletes, and then there's, like, uh, musicians and, you know, all the, all the celebs. And they do some fucked up shit, and she shows up and gets it out of them. And, like, I'm talking borrowing babies to fake a birth. Oh, no. There's one where she's, like, on a plane with one of her clients, and he gets a, a voicemail. 
while they're about to take off. And then he's like, oh, no, you can't really hear the conversation, but sounds like underage photos were found. And that would, that one goes in all kinds of crazy directions. And then there's the owner of the company is um, just hilarious. She's really, really mean, super sharp-witted. And, like, one time she was, like, yelling at them, the Anna Paquin and the um, other people that worked there. And she was like, stop flopping around like epileptic penguins. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. She says some real, she's like, fuck you, basically. I don't care how you get it done or who you lie to. Or if somebody ends up in jail, <laughs> do your job, pretty much. <laughs> and it is. Oh, and then the craziest episode was the 17-year-old. She was like, had been a child. I don't know. If I remember if she was an actor or a singer. I think she was an actor. And they thought she was going to, like, fade away, you know, and she needed to resurrect her career. So they fake a sex tape. Oh, my God. The spin is really, you're like, no. What? No. Yeah, and that's what I've been watching. Oh, okay, nice. What have you been watching, boo? One of the best movies I've seen in a really long time, actually, Nomadland on Hulu. Um. If you're not familiar with it, Nomadland is written and directed by this emerging filmmaker, Chloe Zhao, who just uh, won Best Picture Drama and Best Director at the Golden Globes. And she's only the second woman to win Best Director and the first Asian woman to ever win Best Director at the Golden Globes. And Nomadland... Stars Frances McDormand, who should win every award that there she is. She is amazing. She plays. I saw it too. She was so good. Oh my god! And so she, she just is full of grief, and she takes off from her. She she lived in a factory town that no longer has a factory, and the that town basically ceases to be. So she hits the road in a van and lives that van life she travels around the american west and she meets all these people um she sort of has an interesting friendship pseudo almost romance with uh, a man played by david strafan but then there's a lot of supporting characters who are actual real life nomads who live in various vehicles um who were interviewed for the book that this movie is based on nomadland Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder. That is the book that this movie is based on. And some of those real people from that book are in this movie playing supporting roles. It's very moving. It's um, it's very emotional. You know, when we wrote about hashtag van life and the van life lifestyle in Bust Magazine, it was more like cute girls tricking out cute vans and like riding around and camping and stuff. But this is a lot more about sort of end stage capitalism forcing people to live in vans because they didn't have much of another choice about it. it. It's a choice that people make when their choices have become very limited, but it's a very beautiful movie. And um, I'm so glad it won those awards. And I think it's going to clean up at the Oscars too. And then um, I started watching the HBO max series, Alan versus Pharaoh about Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. You know, there's some there's some artists who have done shitty things and whom you can overlook it to go on and enjoy their art, and there's some that you can't. Yeah. And for me, like, I was a real 
like Woody Allen Stan for a long time. I grew up watching Woody Allen movies. I like loved Annie Hall so much. Um, is he is a very important cultural figure in my household growing up, but I literally cannot with Woody Allen anymore. Like no, I just no. cannot. And I have not been able to in a long time. He is at R. Kelly level. He's at R. Kelly level. Absolutely. And like, you know, there's still people who, who believe that Dylan Farrow doesn't remember what she says that she remembered and that she was brainwashed by Mia Farrow. And, you know, this, there's a lot of interesting corroborating evidence in this documentary series to, to back up Dylan Farrow's claims. But even if in some universe, what Dylan Farrow remembered isn't exactly what happened. And that's not what I'm saying. I believe what she's saying. Mm -hmm. But even if that didn't happen, like Woody Allen is fucking married to his stepdaughter who was trafficked at a young age in Southeast Asia and who was rescued from sex traffickers as like a preteen, as like a tween and was brought to America and was being raised by his partner, Mia Farrow, and he preyed on her. Like, I know yeah, that she was disgusting. like barely of age when the naked pictures were found that revealed their relationship. But he was obviously grooming her like when she was underage. And even if it all started when she was 18 on the dot, like literally fuck you, Woody Allen. Yeah. Like, fuck <laughs> you. I'm with you on this. I am with you. I'm, I've, I've had it. I'm with you. <laughs> All right. And the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page, which is in the world and which is our way of keeping Bust alive as a cultural institution. It is our little fundraiser, and we hope that you will be excited by the goodies we've put together on our website, patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts Podcast. The way it is, is that Callie and I have cooked up all kinds of incentives for you to become a patron of this podcast. Yours, you can sponsor us at any level starting at just $1 a month. And there's different levels that go up to $25 a month. And each level that you go up, there's more and more um, goodies and prizes that you get. You can get ad-free episodes. You can get um, show notes with what everyone has been watching for all 103 episodes of this podcast. You, if you're ever wondering, Hey, what should I watch next? You can just pop on over to your special patrons only Patreon page and be like, Oh yeah, I want to watch what Roxanne Gay is watching and remember what it is that she said that she was enjoying. You can get a gift pack of bust swag. You can get a zoom chat with Callie and I, you can get, personalized thank you notes you can get all kinds of stuff at different membership levels over at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast and i hope you'll check it out because we really want to keep bust alive and this is like our virtual bake sale way of doing it so thank you so much (laughs) and finally i would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer logan del fuego muy caliente logan and our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you can't find Callie on social media, so you don't try, right? Right. But you can email both of us. I'm at Emily Rems at Bust.com. Callie W at Bust.com. 
And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time, Callie. Mwah! Literally, fuck you, Woody Allen. Like, fuck you. Fuck you, Woody Allen. Fuck you, and fuck your films. I've had it.